0: You're listening to the unsiloed podcast with greg leblanc brought to you by alumni.fm unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world so wherever you are today enjoy today's episode and here's your host greg leblanc
1: welcome to unsiloed this is greg leblanc and i'm here today with adam winkler who is a professor of law at ucla and also the author of we the corporations how american businesses won their civil rights and also the author of gunfight the battle of rights to bear arms in america welcome adam thanks so much for
0: having me appreciate you uh featuring this book
1: well this book is really i think i mean it's kind of a tour de force it's an incredible history and it really goes way back i mean way back to blackstone way back to the founding of the country i mean before the independence, I mean, all the way back to the founding of the Virginia Company and the Massachusetts Bay Company, and it highlights how corporations have had a kind of, what might call it a civil rights history of their own, which has gone on in parallel to all of the other civil rights movements, and often kind of there's been this exchange back and forth between the different civil rights movements where the civil rights of the corporations have borrowed from ideas from legal concepts in other areas of civil rights and vice versa. It's really an incredible story. And I think it's a story that most people are completely unaware of, even legal historians. And when something like law and legal opinions, Supreme Court opinions, this stuff is public, right? We have entire profession or occupation, right? Law professors that just spend all of their time you know going through all of these opinions going through law review articles perusing the history of the law how could this entire history be so poorly understood it culminated of course with this case citizens united i mean this is the thing that i think has really brought to the attention of the american public this idea that corporations have rights constitutional rights and of course mitt romney famously said that corporations are people too. And, and he got into all sorts of trouble. But I think, as you point out, he meant it in a way that was very different from the way we think about it. And it's actually his interpretation that is more consistent with some of the points of view of these groundbreaking legal opinions, where he talks about kind of the people who make up the corporation rather than the corporation itself as a person. Anyway, there's so much to talk about. Adam. First, just maybe tell me, like, how did this history kind of escape more general notice? And what brought you to this history?
0: Well, I think what brought me to the history was, uh, I was inspired to look into this issue by the Supreme Court's hugely controversial decision in Citizens United, right? Which made a lot of headlines and stirred a lot of controversy. That case held that business corporations can spend unlimited sums of money to influence our elections. and. I guess I wondered how did corporations come to have First Amendment rights and other constitutional rights that we ordinarily think of as belonging to people? In school, we learn about the civil rights movement and the women's rights movement, because we think of rights generally as something that belong to people. But there's also been a corporate rights movement. And as I looked into this history, I found that, like minorities and like women, that corporations have also fought relentlessly to win equal rights since America's earliest days. Corporations use those rights to overturn laws regulating business, and we could see why corporations would want rights that can be used to overturn laws regulating business. And I think, you know, it sort of escaped notice for the most part because there wasn't the kind of high profile mass movement behind the corporate rights struggle, if you will. Ronald McDonald and the Jolly Green Giant, they they don't march on Washington. They don't protest with signs on Main Street. But nonetheless, if we look in the Supreme Court and the history of the Supreme Court, we see a history of America's most powerful corporations persistently seeking expansive rulings by the Supreme Court to extend constitutional protections that are designed for people two businesses. And today, corporations have not all of the same rights as you and me, but nearly all the same rights as you and me, and pretty much all of the rights that a corporation or a business person could want the corporation to have. And so I realized that this was a story that hadn't been well told. And as I dug into it, I found that it was a much more interesting, unexpected, surprising, and fascinating history than I could have ever imagined.
1: Well, I mean, look, corporations have been around for a long time. And in your book, you talk about even in Rome, right? We had the Societas Publicorum. I can't my Latin, I always forget, right? But, you know, the Publicani. So we had these corporations. And then, of course, the church, Oxford University, the City of London, all throughout the Middle Ages, corporations were recognized or created. I guess that's one of the key questions is, you know, are they recognized or are they kind of created by the sovereign? And Blackstone, of course, who is the inspiration for so many people of our founders in in the creation of American law, right? You know, he has a whole section on corporations. You know, they've been around forever. And I think the big debate that has always been there around corporations is whether corporations are just extensions of the state, right? And that exist to serve some kind of public function. And if that's the case, then the state should be able to treat them as agents and presumably provide them with instructions and override those instructions or are they kind of set up as instruments of the individuals, the contributors of of capital and so forth. And so that debate has always been going on and I think that it's probably that the latter argument has prevailed, but there's always been this kind of tension and tug of war, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And in part, the reason why there is this tug of war is because corporations and how they've been treated in the law has changed over the years. You know, back when Blackstone was writing about corporations in the 1760s and 70s and 50s, during that time, to form a corporation, uh, you had to get a special charter passed by parliament or by the colonial legislatures. If you wanted to form a corporation, you didn't just do today, download a form online, fill it out and send it in with a check for a small fee, you had to go to the legislature and get the legislature to pass a law allowing you to form a corporation because a corporation was an unusual entity. It provided limited liability. You could put money into that corporation. That corporation could go accomplish certain things like build a road or build a turnpike or uh, later railroads. And if there was an accident, if there, the business was negligent, then the corporation was liable, but not the individual people behind it. And so for this unusual form of entity, you needed to get a charter from the state. And traditionally, charters were not forthcoming unless the corporation had a public purpose. That is to say, you had to specify in the charter how this corporation was going to serve the public. And over the centuries of American history, we see that that idea slowly gets pushed aside. And the Supreme Court plays an important role in that. I talk in the book about an important case, the Dartmouth College case, decided in the 18-teens, where the Supreme Court said that corporations were essentially private entities and that If we think about the Constitution of the United States as having sort of recognizing two different bodies, right? There's the government and there's individuals and there's people. And the Constitution is designed to limit what the government can do to people. Can't limit their free speech, can't engage in unreasonable searches and seizures without probable cause, et cetera. There's limits on what the government can do to people. And in the Dartmouth College case, the Supreme Court firmly sided with the idea that a corporation was more like a person, an individual, than it was like the government. The court in that case could have allowed the state of New Hampshire to take over Dartmouth College and said that a corporation is really just another state agency in some form or some mild form of a state agency or government actor. But instead, the court said that a corporation was on the private side, more like the individual, uh, and had rights against the government. Uh, And so that decision was really uh, essential in sort of changing how we started to think about corporations. And they became less and less about uh, achieving public purposes and more and more about achieving private purposes. That is to say, making money for investors.
1: So I think in law school, we all study the Dartmouth case, but there's a lesser known case that happened right around the same time, the the Charles River Bridge case, which also had... Daniel Webster. And I found that case, your discussion of that case, very interesting, because when charters were granted for specific purposes by governments, there usually was sort of a a monopoly element associated with it. And when you talk about how the political division between the corporatists and the populists, and the populists were against monopoly capital or against corporations, but it was really the populists that were behind the move towards general incorporation, right? So they were the ones that were really in the name of knocking down these monopoly privileges. It was sort of the, the populists that set us on this path towards corporations as being instruments of individuals and not as instruments of the government. Right. Yeah. No. I think that's one of the man, one of the many paradoxes I think that you discuss in the book.
0: Yeah, that's right. And Charles Riverbridge was an important case. Uh, yeah, I mean, you mentioned Daniel Webster. I talk about Daniel Webster, I have a chapter about him in the book. Daniel Webster is considered one of the great advocates in Supreme Court history. He argued uh, well over 200 cases uh, in the Supreme Court, many of them about constitutional issues at a time in the early 1800s when the Supreme Court was just kind of figuring out the Constitution, just sort of establishing the basic doctrines around the Constitution. And he was very, very influential. And in fact, in his lifetime, he was known as the defender of the Constitution. That was kind of his moniker. And I tell the story in the book that he was also really a defender of the corporation. And he was the corporation's lawyer in many ways. So many of his cases that he brought before the Supreme Court were about protecting corporations from government regulation and expanding the rights of business corporations. The Charles River Bridge case is an example of a case where the Supreme Court ruled against the idea of expansive rights for corporations in that particular case, which dealt with two competing bridges over a river in Boston, uh, where the the first bridge said, "We have a monopoly, and we you should not. The state is not allowed to issue a charter to a competing bridge." And again, highlighting what you mentioned, Greg, that idea of monopoly, saying we had a monopoly power. But the court in the Charles River Bridge case, it's in a landmark case for many reasons, and primarily because the court said, you know what, there's no monopoly that's clearly laid out in the corporate charter of the first bridge, so we're not going to read a monopoly power in there. And what that basically came to stand for was that, that a corporation would not inherently have a monopoly, and that it was perfectly acceptable for the state to charter competing corporations to try to accomplish very similar goals. And so that Again, one more measure by which the Supreme Court sort of changed how we approached and thought about corporations, in this case, to eliminate that inherent monopoly power.
1: Right. Well, so if you don't have kind of antitrust law and labor law and consumer protection law and all these other things, then I guess the only way that you can control corporate activity is through the charter, right? In a way, in order for us to kind of move towards general incorporation, we had to develop all of these other bodies of of general law to make sure that the you know the will of the people was was being enforced right so those two stories sort of go hand in hand the evolution of these more general bodies of law and then the kind of the retreat from uh, controlling companies through through the charter right
0: yeah that's absolutely right you know when in early america the way you controlled a corporation was as you mentioned by through the charter like the the incorporating state would impose limits on what corporations for instance could charge. That first bridge that opened over the river in Boston, Charles River, its charter specified how much it could charge people to cross the river. It was basically price control. It limited how the corporation could raise money, how much money it could raise, how they had to distribute that money. Today, we find, uh, and in part you mentioned general incorporation, that arises prominently in the 1930s. And then Over the course of the 1800s, becomes more and more popular, expands to more and more different kinds of corporations until you get to like the 1890s, in which case general incorporation permits a corporation to form for any lawful purpose whatsoever without any real feedback by the state. Just whatever the incorporators wanted to set up a corporation to do so long as it was not illegal was permitted. And that process of general incorporation meant that the charters passed by state legislatures became less significant. You didn't even need, a, you know, in the course of general incorporation, a state-granted charter through the legislature. You would get general incorporation. You would be able to fill out forms and get the right to form that corporation. And so lawmakers still wanted to control corporate corruption. Indeed, corporations only got more powerful, more commonplace and more potentially victimizing more people, either consumers or employees or investors. And so with general corporation and the demise of chartering as the primary regulatory mode for corporations, we saw the rise of other areas of law, such as like you mentioned, labor law, securities law, occupational safety laws, a whole variety of different laws, consumer protection laws. And so today when we think about the regulation of corporations, it's funny enough, we don't really look that much to corporate law. Corporate law doesn't do that much regulation of corporations, rather corporations are regulated by these areas of law that are external to corporate law, as I just listed. So uh, it does definitely change how we think about corporations, but it certainly would be a mistake to think the corporations became unregulated when chartering fell out of use. It's just that the regulations came in different
1: forms. Now, now this process probably would never have happened if not for, well, whether it's the race to the bottom or the race to the top, right? But the ability for companies to kind of choose their place of incorporation independent of kind of where they're operating. And that really only was possible because companies were allowed to do business in states outside of their state of incorporation. And this really is the heart of the early story, right? Where it's really all about jurisdiction and can you sue in what courts, right? So there's there's a little bit of really detailed stuff about that, which maybe outside of, if you're not a law professor, you might not find that as interesting as I did. But really, the story there, it's not so much a story about pro or anti- corporation, but a lot of it's about kind of local corporations fighting out-of-state corporations, right? So there are these these twin cases, right, with Hope Insurance and Bank of the United States. And, and they're really all about the ability to sue and the ability to be sued in federal court versus state court. Could you walk through that? Like, how did that whole, what seems like a narrow issue of jurisdiction, how did that ultimately kind of propel us towards the idea of of corporate rights.
0: Sure. Well, I mean, I tell the story in the book of what was the the first corporate rights case in the Supreme Court, the first case where the Supreme Court was asked, does a particular constitutional protection apply to corporations? And, you know, given the outrage over Citizens United, one might be sort of tempted to believe that, uh, you know, that was the first time corporations had one individual right. But, The first Supreme Court case asking whether corporations were protected by a provision of the Constitution was decided all the way back in 1809. And to put that in some perspective, as I say in the book, the first Supreme Court case on the rights of African Americans under the Constitution wasn't decided until the 1850s, the uh, notorious Dred Scott case. And the first Supreme Court case on whether women had constitutional rights Uh, wasn't decided until the 1870s. So the corporations were in the Supreme Court, you know, almost a half century before those two cases. And unlike the African-American and Dred Scott and the woman in the case Bradwell versus Illinois in the 1870s, both of whom lost their cases, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of the corporation in the first corporate rights case that case involved the first great corporation in america the bank of the united states it was the first national corporation with branches all the way from boston down to new orleans some of you if you're a fan of hamilton the musical you may remember the debate over whether to create the bank of the united states that divided alexander hamilton and thomas jefferson leading the establishment of the two-party system not to mention you know that stirring rap battle that we have in hamilton and what happened was Jeffersonians lost that debate, right? Jefferson was opposed to the creation of the National Bank and Jeffersonians in Georgia tried to tax the bank out of business, basically impose a tax on it so that the bank couldn't operate in Savannah, Georgia. And the bank went to the Supreme Court claiming that it had a constitutional right to challenge that tax in federal court. The at issue was a provision of Article Three of the Constitution that says, Federal courts are available for access, essentially, for lawsuits between citizens of different states. And the idea here was the framers were aware that local state courts might be beholden to local interests. And so they wanted to create, in the Constitution, essentially a right to go to federal court if two people from different states were suing each other, so neither of them would be victimized by this kind of parochialism or bias for local residents. But of course, the odd thing for the corporation is that it's clearly not a citizen. And so the text of the constitution wouldn't seem to give corporations the right to sue in federal court. That's a right that belonged to citizens of different states. Yet in that case, the case called Bank of the United States versus DeVoe, the Supreme Court held that corporations were protected by this provision, that they did have a right to sue in federal court, um, regardless of the fact that they weren't citizens. And that case has really been lost to modern memory. You won't find it in any constitutional law textbooks. You don't find it much written about much in the history of the era. You can't even find much about it in the histories of the Bank of the United States, surprisingly. But it really, that case really laid the foundation for over two centuries of Supreme Court cases, extending fundamental rights to corporations. And it's really one of the, the hidden landmarks of American constitutional law. And ever since then, really, corporations have found a a welcoming forum in the Supreme Court
1: for their claims of constitutional protection. But what's really strange about that case is that when they're, they're trying to find diversity, what they would do is they would look not to the place of incorporation, but the kind of citizenship of the folks that, invested in the company, right? Or that were, we're part of the company. And this- oh, this sort of directors. Yeah. That, that yeah. period, we're looking mostly at the board of directors. That means that they're not looking at the company as a person, but rather they're looking at it as sort of a, I mean, it's almost as if it was a partnership. I mean, it, it's treated the same way as if it were a partnership made up of individuals, right? So even though this seems to be the, the heart of the origin of corporate kind of personhood, it's not about personhood at all. Justice Taney, who, who is the, the one who disputed this, this view, right? He's the one that, that said that, you know, these things are, are corporations. I think this is the key mystery that you're trying to unravel. And it comes up later with the NAACP case, right? Where if we're trying to figure out whether or not the NAACP is likely to be discriminated against, we look to the identity of the people on behalf of of whom it's working or the people who are involved in the organization. I mean, how does that whole debate play out? I mean, it seems almost as if regardless of which way you make the argument, whether the company is an individual or whether the company is a collection of individuals, it seems to work in the favor of the corporation over the course of the last couple hundred years. Well, that's probably right. Yeah,
0: I make this important distinction in my book between a corporate personhood on the one hand and piercing the corporate veil, on the other hand, borrowing a term from corporate law. The basic idea of a corporation from the earliest corporations founded in ancient Rome was to create a legal entity that was separate and distinct from the owners. And that legal entity can own property, enter into contracts, and sue and be sued in its own name. That's why today, if you slip and fall in a Starbucks store, You have to sue the company, Starbucks. You can't sue individual shareholders like, say, Howard Schultz or something like that. You have to sue the corporate entity because the corporation is an independent legal person. That is to say, it has its own legal identity in the law. It has its own liabilities and its own responsibilities. And as my book shows, its own constitutional rights, too. That's different from, say, a partnership. A partnership is essentially kind of a pass-through partnership property is not owned by the partnership. It's owned by the partners. And if someone leaves a partnership, well, then the partnership has to be reorganized. Of course, the law has made that very easy these days so that it's simple. But with a corporation, the owners can come and go and nothing has to be reorganized because the corporation is its own legal person. And while we think that corporate personhood is often said to be sort of the basis of constitutional rights in the wake of Citizens United. You heard protesters saying corporations are not people, et cetera. But what's interesting and what I found in my research is that while corporations have been extended constitutional protections, often it's not been because they are people entitled to the same rights under the Constitution, but rather because they're kind of irrelevant and that what the court does is pierce the corporate veil. The way in corporate law, what that means is that The court will generally, in cases where they're piercing the corporate veil, looking beyond the formal appearance or formal uh, independence of a corporation and impose liability on the particular owners, on the owners behind it. And this is really how the court has tended, for the most part, to justify constitutional protections for corporations by seeing them as kind of like a pass through and that the people behind the corporation have rights. And so we must protect the rights of those people by giving rights to the corporation too. Corporate personhood plays a complicated and nuanced role in the development and growth of corporate constitutional rights.
1: I mean, that seems a little weird, right? So if someone attempted to go after your assets as as a shareholder, you would say, hey, Corporate veil, right? You know, who I am and what I've got is totally irrelevant. But then when it comes to someone trying to deprive the corporation of rights, that's when you invoke, you know, hey, look through the veil and see who I am. And, you know, my interests are at stake here. Right. A great example of
0: that, by the way, is the Hobby Lobby case that was decided a few years ago by the Supreme Court. As part of the Obamacare regulations, large corporations like Hobby Lobby, the chain of craft stores, had to provide in health insurance plans, coverage for birth control for employees. And Hobby Lobby sued claiming that that requirement to provide birth control in health insurance uh, violated Hobby Lobby's religious freedom. And the argument at the end of the day, obviously Hobby Lobby doesn't have a religion. Hobby Lobby never goes to church. Hobby Lobby is a corporation. It's an abstract legal entity that can't have beliefs like religious beliefs what was really at issue was that the owners of hobby lobby which was a privately held corporation owned by the green family the greens were religious conservatives and they thought that imp- providing birth control was against their religious beliefs and so they went to the supreme court saying you can't impose this mandate on us to provide birth control it infringes on on the religious beliefs of hobby lobby and us the people behind hobby lobby and they won that case, by the way, and the Supreme Court said essentially that the rights at issue in this case were the rights of the Green family. Of course, if you had slipped and fallen in a Hobby Lobby store and sued the Green family for creating negligent conditions, they'd be the first ones in court to say, hey, you can't sue us. There's a separation, a strict wall of separation between the corporate entity and us. You can't take our money. You could sue Hobby Lobby the company, but you can't sue us personally. So the Green family was willing to impose their religious beliefs on the corporation and affect tens of thousands of employees, but would absolutely insist on the fundamental separation of the independent legal person Hobby Lobby from their own assets if someone had fallen and suffered an injury
1: in a Hobby Lobby store. Yeah, so that's interesting. So a corporation then can have a religion, right? Uh, Religious beliefs, and presumably also a corporation can have a racial identity. I found one of the cases that was really interesting was the the Pleasure Park case, right, which essentially said that a corporation could not have a racial identity. But I think by now we've come to think of corporations as having racial identities. Could you talk a bit about how that has changed over time? Well, this was one of
0: definitely one of the most uh, the oddest and in some ways uh, one of the most surprising issues I came upon in looking at this history It's one thing to say a corporation is a person for legal purposes, right? That doesn't mean to say that they're just like uh, you and me, right? If you prick them, they do not bleed. If you tickle them, they do not laugh. Uh, They are not human beings, but they could be a legal person, right? We can uh, understand uh, that basic idea of the corporation being a legal person. But it would seem a stretch to say that even if a corporation is recognized as a legal person, that it would have a racial identity that a corporation can't be black or white or Latino or male or female. It's just an abstract legal concept that exists only for purposes of law. This issue, though, about the race of a corporation arose first in the Jim Crow era. You know, there was always an effort to define different, even inanimate objects as being black or being white in the Jim Crow era. And it mattered in, you mentioned the Pleasure Park case, because in the South, there were things like restrictive covenants built into deeds that said that, say, you couldn't sell this land to a black person. Well, what happens if you sold that land to a corporation that was owned by black people? Was that a sale to a black person? Well, maybe not, right? And so that issue came up in the Jim Crow era, and then you know I was surprised also to realize that it arises even today, and that we don't think of corporations necessarily as being black or white or whatnot, but the law treats them in such a way. We have laws that provide, for instance, various kinds of preferences, affirmative action, if you will, for minority business enterprises. Well, what is a minority business enterprise other than a corporation that has been deemed to have a racial identity? And so today, the fact that corporations have racial identities it seems odd, but when you look closely, you realize that this is actually a pretty well established idea within our uh, law
1: and our doctrine. So you have a whole chapter on the 14th Amendment and you talk about Stephen Field and you talk about Roscoe Conkling. And I think these are people that most people are unaware of today, that they haven't left their mark in a lot of American history. But, you know, this story is really all about how the 14th Amendment became, as one person said, kind of the Magna Carta of corporate capital. And it seemed like the 14th Amendment did more to protect companies than it did to protect its intended beneficiaries over much of the 19th century. And so the the key cases there involved... Leland Stanford's railroads, right? So the San Mateo case and the Santa Clara case. And uh, Charles Beard wrote about this kind of conspiracy theory around the 14th Amendment, which has been debunked. But could could you talk a bit about that? I found that story really interesting.
0: You know, in some ways, this is the story that, that really uh, got me to write this book. I mean, I mentioned that Citizens United got me to explore the issue and really dive deep. But when I found the story of how corporations won rights under the 14th amendment, I I knew that I had to tell this story because it's a crazy story. One that even uh, I think the vast majority of law professors had never heard before, and it's a story about a groundbreaking series of test cases brought by the Southern Pacific railroad uh, to win the rights of equality guaranteed by the 14th amendment. That amendment was passed right after the civil war to protect the newly freed slaves. And the Southern Pacific Railroad wanted to use the 14th Amendment to challenge a California law that imposed special taxes on railroad corporations. And the Southern Pacific Railroad wanted to say that law was unconstitutional under the 14th Amendment for violating the principle of equality that was designed to protect the newly freed enslaved people. And two of the Southern Pacific Railroads cases made it to the Supreme Court, and in the first one, a lawyer by the name of Roscoe Conkling, who, as you mentioned, is not well known today, but at the time was one of the most renowned lawyers in America. He had been a longtime congressman and senator from New York. He had sometimes been called the the most powerful man in Washington, even above the president of the United States, because he was a leader of the Republican Party in the 1870s when the Republican Party was. Uh, really dominated Washington politics. And Roscoe Conkling, after he left the Senate, was a lawyer for the Southern Pacific Railroad. And he went to the Supreme Court and he said that uh, the drafters of the 14th Amendment had intended to provide equality, not just to newly freed slaves, but to business corporations as well. And now, this was an audacious argument, right? I mean, this is uh, the 14th Amendment had been debated. Uh, We all know it was about slavery. But Conkling, you know, he was not the type of lawyer who'd let a little thing like the text of the Constitution get in his way. And Conkling argued that it was designed and intended to protect both corporations and people, too. And he had unusual credibility in making this claim. Number one, Conkling had been nominated and confirmed to be a Supreme Court justice himself. In fact, just months before he had made his argument on behalf of the Southern Pacific Railroad, he refused to take his seat on the Supreme Court because he was making too much money as a lawyer for the railroad. And he remains, by the way, to this day, the last person ever to turn down a seat on the Supreme Court after having been confirmed. So when he's talking to the justices, they kind of view him as a peer, right? This is someone, uh, you but, know. But you do, but you do have them. the case.
1: You do have the case of Charles Evans Hughes, like quitting the Supreme Court, right?
0: Yeah, he Charles and Evans Hughes, so, yeah, other people who have been who have quit the Supreme Court, and then he, comes he, back. <laughs> Evans Hughes couldn't stay away. He came back, right? He became a justice again later on in life. But Conkling also had credibility because he had been, as a young congressman, on the committee. That had drafted the 14th Amendment. So, when he was saying that this was the intent of the framers of the 14th Amendment, he was talking about his own personal experience. And Conkling used that credibility to insist and sort of mislead the justices into believing that the drafters intended to protect corporations.
1: And it was, he was the last member that was still alive, right, at the time. So, yeah,
0: when this case was argued in the 1880s, he was the last surviving member of that committee. So, there was no one around to really disagree with him. And the Supreme Court ultimately, a couple of years later, basically adopted Conkling's argument and said that corporations had rights under the 14th Amendment, too. And part of that story is the story of Stephen Field, who was a justice on the Supreme Court, who, like Conkling, was associated with the Southern Pacific Railroad and who believed that corporations needed to have rights to protect against growing socialism. And so Field engaged in some nefarious manipulations, some unethical activities, such as sharing memos with the lawyers for the Southern Pacific Railroad, and ultimately dropped into an opinion that corporations had rights under the 14th Amendment, even though it wasn't really necessary to decide that particular case. But nonetheless, ever since, corporations have been recognized to have 14th Amendment rights to equality. And I tell the story in the book that there was a guy who, in 1912, who set out to do one of the first empirical studies of Supreme Court opinions, and he gathered every case that the Supreme Court had on the Fourteenth Amendment, and found that there were 27 cases in the. I guess it was about 48 years during the uh, in that period between ratification of the Fourteenth Amendment and the study itself. There were uh, in that 48 there were about 27 cases brought by African Americans seeking equal rights under the 14th Amendment. And in that same period, there were over 300 cases brought by business corporations and that corporations won a lot of those cases, whereas African-Americans lost almost all of their cases. And so the 14th Amendment adopted to provide equality for the most vulnerable minority in America became a tool used by the captains of capital to
1: strike down laws regulating business. One of the things that, that I was struck by in the book was how different the legal world was in the 19th century. You have these oral arguments that go on for a long period of time, right? Charisma of the lawyers seems to make a big difference, like you know, Daniel Webster and this guy Conkling were very you know, charismatic people. But also I think that the judges themselves, the justices themselves, they prided themselves on, on their creativity A judge or justice back in those days would be less likely to call themselves an an umpire calling balls and strikes. But really, they saw themselves as building a nation, building an empire and thinking seriously about how they were shaping the law, not simply just refracting it or evaluating it. I mean, I mean, Stephen Field, if you look at the biographies of Stephen Field
0: written during his era, you know, right after he retired and whatnot, he was complimented for being a creative force. Someone who tried to make the best sense of the law and make it more practicable for an emerging, growing, changing society in an age of industrialization. He was not an originalist. He didn't believe the 14th Amendment protected corporations because that was the original understanding of the framers. He didn't buy into Conkling's nonsense uh, about the drafting history of the 14th Amendment. He believed it was necessary to expand 14th Amendment rights because he thought it would serve good public policy ends, that business people deserved to know that their rights would be protected, that if they invested in a business that those that money would be secure from excessive government regulation or from government efforts to take that money away. It is very, very different from today. Today, when we see these justices thought to be creative, will be criticized, uh, whether left or right. Uh, You don't see justices ever saying they wanna be creative. Today, all adhere to the idea that they're bound by the law and are just sort of vehicles for articulating the law, which is kind of odd, because you think that we were more honest about what judges were doing 150 years ago than we are today, and it's kind of absurd.
1: The period that's called the Lochner period is well known as being a period where corporations received a lot of protection from regulations. But I think you argue that that it was a little bit more nuanced during that period and that it wasn't all pro-corporate in that sense. Could you tell us a bit more about that period and how the doctrine evolved over that period? That was another kind of one of the surprises that I found in doing the research for this book is
0: that. You know, the Lochner era is so famous for being very business friendly. And indeed, the Lochner court was very business friendly. That's not wrong. But one element of that was surprising is is that in the Lochner era, the court for the first time really in American history imposed new limits and boundaries on the rights of business corporations. Of course, in part because the court was so business friendly, and I already mentioned those statistics about the 14th Amendment. Uh, and how many, how often it was used by corporations, corporations were constantly going to the Supreme Court, looking for the courts to strike down laws regulating businesses. And the reason why they went to court is because the courts were generally pretty favorable to those views. But uh, maybe corporations were too aggressive at that time because the court did impose new limits on the boundaries of corporations. For instance, when the first campaign finance laws were adopted right around the turn of the centuries, that limited corporate contributions to candidates and corporate expenditures in favor of elected officials, the courts back in the Lochner era said, no, corporations don't have a right to participate in politics, to spend money to try to influence elections, something that the Citizens United case, a hundred years later, would say the exact opposite, would say, you do, corporations do have a right to influence American politics. The court also in the Lochner era imposed limits on the rights of corporations by denying them uh, certain criminal procedure protections. Right, Many of the Bill of Rights, many of the provisions of the Bill of Rights basically provide protections for people who are being investigated, charged, or convicted of crimes, from unreasonable searches and seizures under the Fourth Amendment to prohibitions on cruel and unusual punishment, uh, a right to counsel, et cetera, et cetera, right to jury of your peers, et cetera. And the Supreme Court said that corporations don't have all of those same rights uh, that criminal defendants would have, and that government had more power to try to regulate corporations when they engaged in criminal activity than they would have over ordinary individuals and a variety of other things. In a case that's sort of reminiscent of a current controversy, one of the big issues today in corporate rights is whether a corporation can refuse to do business with someone because the corporation doesn't want to associate with that person. So think about uh, a cake, uh, a good example is Masterpiece Cake Shop, a case that in the Supreme Court a few years ago, where a Masterpiece Cake Shop, a bakery that made wedding cakes, did not want to serve wedding cakes, did not want to bake a wedding cake for a same-sex wedding because it, opp- it was uh, the, the owner of the cake shop was opposed to same-sex marriages. And the Supreme Court said, Yes, the cake shop does have First Amendment rights and can refuse to bake that cake. Back in the early 1900s, the Lochner Court faced a very similar kind of issue, where a racetrack that had been required under California law to admit anyone who had a valid ticket, an early form of anti-discrimination law, to be frank, the racetrack tried to keep out, wanted to keep out people who it didn't want to associate with. And the Supreme Court said, no, corporations don't have the right to free association, don't have the same right to decide who can come and use the business and who can't. Uh, if you're open to the public, you're open to the public. And the state has the ability to require you to provide services to people who are who have a valid ticket, who purchased the ticket uh, in a valid way. And so the court back then wouldn't allow corporations to have some of the rights that the current Roberts Court is allowing corporations to have, rights of political freedom and political influence as well as rights of association that enable them to refuse to do business with certain people, despite laws saying you have to be open to everybody.
1: And I think that's really the focus of the whole second half of your book is really about how this distinction between the property rights and liberty rights, which I guess is really the difference between personhood and citizenship, those kind of dissolved over the course of the 20th century. And I guess, you know, when you talk about the campaign finance stuff, Tillman Act, I think was in play there. And this distinction, it kind of also dovetails with how we think about antitrust, right? So in the Chicago view of antitrust, right, antitrust is really all about economics. It's all about efficiency. It's all about the consumer. But there's always been this other strain in antitrust law where the concern was that, that these large enterprises are going to distort the political process through lobbying and through influencing campaign outcomes. And it was indeed the Tillman Act which was designed to kind of prevent that. There were a couple different steps along the way, but how did this distinction between the, the, the property rights and, and the liberty rights dissolve over the course of the 20th century?
0: Yeah, no, it's an important distinction and one that the Lochner-era court was the first to make, to say the corporations had rights of property, right? The government couldn't come take the corporation's property without paying just compensation. But corporations, the Lochner-era court said, did not have liberty rights, rights of personal freedom, uh, of political conscience, of religious belief, those kinds of things. But that distinction between property rights and liberty rights gets broken down over the course of the 20th century. And by the way, one of the surprising things I found in in my research is that it was often liberal or progressive courts that broke down that barrier. It started in the First Amendment area with regards to the freedom of the press. In response to Huey Long, the governor, the demagogic governor, and then later senator of the state of Louisiana, the local newspapers had opposed uh, Long's policies. And Long tried to basically shut them up and imposed attacks on the big Louisiana major
1: daily newspapers. It was like an early version of Victor Orban, right? <laughs> That's right, right.
0: I mean, I think of, uh, of Long really is an early
1: version of Donald Trump, right?
0: Uh-huh. He was Trump before Trump. He was an aggressive, boisterous populist who was elected on the eve of the Great Depression promising to make Louisiana great again. He, he when, even
1: talked to, he even accused the, the big newspapers of, of engaging in fake news, right?
0: He did. It's exactly what he did. And he, he passed this tax on the advertising revenue of large dailies. And he said that the tax should be called a tax on lying, two cents per lie. And the newspaper companies went to the Supreme Court challenging that law. And although the law at the time was that the First Amendment only protected against prior restraints, only against government efforts to censor speakers in advance, but did not prevent government from punishing speakers after the fact or otherwise indirectly burdening speakers. The Supreme Court, nonetheless, in a landmark case, uh, the American Press Enterprise case versus Grosschin ruled in favor of the newspaper corporations and said that the newspaper corporations did have a right under the First Amendment to freedom of the press and could uh, had a fir- constitutional right to be free of censorship. And that was the sort of the first case where the Supreme Court really extends what we might see as a liberty right to a corporation, a First Amendment right to a corporation. And that, uh, that ex- gets expanded in the years to come. Eventually, the court will, in the context of the NAACP, when it's tried to, when the Southern states try to put the NAACP out of business in the wake of the NAACP's victory in Brown versus Board of Education, they try to use corporate law to do it by saying that this is a corporate entity that hasn't followed all the corporate rules. And the Supreme Court says no, the corporate that it is a corporation, but it has certain privacy rights too and rights of freedom of association. So it can protect, it can refuse to provide lists of its members and things like that. And so the court ultimately breaks down this barrier between property rights and liberty rights, uh, really paving the way, opening up the door for Citizens United.
1: Now, if we take it a little bit closer to the present and we think about how Citizens United became law, really, Ralph Nader seems to be the inspirational figure right i mean the father of the spiritual father of the of citizen united perhaps unintentionally how what was his role in all of this and, and sort of expanding the these rights beyond those of newspapers and he came up with this kind of unique idea of the the right to listen or the right to be communicated with as opposed to simply the right to communicate how did that that play out and why is ralph nader really in many ways the spiritual godfather of of citizens united
0: And it's so odd to think that Ralph Nader might be the spiritual godfather of Citizens United. Ralph Nader made his name as being one of the great consumer advocates in American history uh, in the 1960s and 70s. No one was more influential than Ralph Nader on the state of American law in a time period where we expanded incredible protections for consumers. He was the anti-corporate crusader his whole career. But he uh, his organization Public Citizen took a case to the Supreme Court that was designed to protect the rights of consumers but ended up greatly expanding the rights of corporations. The case was involved a challenge to a Virginia law that restricted how pharmacies could advertise the price of prescription drugs. It basically said the pharmacies cannot advertise the price of prescription drugs and it was kind of one of these sort of you know we want clean pharmacists we don't want the sort of the pharmacist to engage in sort of the dirty business of price competition or whatnot. But Ralph Nader accurately viewed this law as one that really restricted the ability of consumers, many of whom were poor, many of whom didn't have great resources, to comparison shop and to try to find the cheapest medication that they could or the, the cheapest pharmacy that they could to fulfill their prescription. And so he brought a law challenging this, pharma- this restriction on pharmaceutical advertising um, uh, saying that this was a restriction on the First Amendment. But because Nader was not, you know, a lawyer for businessmen, right, he didn't represent any pharmacists who wanted to speak. He represented consumers who wanted to hear the information that pharmacists might say, that is say they, they wanted the advertising, they wanted the the price information so that they could do comparison shopping. And to sort of overcome this problem, that created a little problem in the First Amendment. The First Amendment doesn't protect, obviously, the rights of listeners, right? It's a right of freedom of speech. But he didn't have anyone in his case who wanted to speak. He was representing people who wanted to hear what someone might say. And so he devised an argument. He and his lawyer, Alan Morrison, and still a very uh, you know influential Supreme Court advocate over the years, um, uh, Alan Morrison developed this idea of the listeners' rights theory of the First Amendment, that the First Amendment also protected the rights of listeners to hear what speakers might want to say and they won that case uh, against the virginia pharmacy law and the supreme court in an opinion the virginia pharmacy case adopted this listeners rights theory of the first amendment and that had two big effects the first was it gave a window it gave a tool for uh, corporations to challenge other forms of restrictions on their advertising and in the years since Uh, The Virginia pharmacy case, corporations have challenged laws restricting how they can uh, restricting or laws mandating graphic warnings on cigarette labels, restricting the ability to advertise tobacco and alcohol and gambling. All these things, the corporations have successfully used that Virginia pharmacy precedent to expand their rights to engage in commercial advertising. So these cases have benefited corporations who want to advertise much more than the consumers, who often were the subject of protection by these laws that restricted gaming advertisement, liquor advertisement and whatnot. And then the second big impact of this case is by the listeners', theory, listeners rights theory of the First Amendment would come to be used by corporations and by the Supreme Court, which took a conservative turn in the 70s and 80s, one that continues on to this today, to use the listener's rights theory to strike down restrictions on corporate political speech, first in the 1970s, and then again in Citizens United. If you look at Citizens United, the court never says corporations are people entitled to a freedom of speech. Instead, the court uses a a couple of different theories, but one of them is that The restriction on corporate speech involved in Citizens United restricted the ability of listeners to hear what corporations had to say about political issues, and thus was a violation of the First Amendment. Nader's theory empowers corporations and makes it harder and has led indirectly, at least, to the expansion of corporate rights in the political sphere as well.
1: Well, I mean, this really does get to the heart of the issue, right? Because if we believe in the marketplace of ideas and we believe that this marketplace works to some degree, then we want all this information to be presented in front of voters, right? So voters can make an informed decision. And if companies aren't the ones producing this information, right, who, who's going to produce this this information. I mean, this, this goes all the way back to, I think, Hannah, who, <laughs> right, uh, who is sort of the Karl Rove of his day, right? And the elections of the 1890s with, with McKinley, and you have all these in- insurance companies that are funding election campaigns. And I guess the real debate is when these insurance companies were, were funding these elections, were they actually representing the interests of the people that they insured, or were they representing the executives? If you believe like Berlin means that the the shareholders and the customers and in, in this insurance mutual companies they're one and the same right if If you really believe that the the corporations are agents of the shareholders and agents of of the customers and agents of all the other people they may benefit, then you really wouldn't see any problem here, but if you think that there's there's a wedge between those constituents and the folks that are making the decisions, then you see this as as a huge problem. You know, how should we be thinking about that? Do we think that voters make more informed decisions when the market for information is open to the highest bidder? Do we think that that's likely to get hijacked? Is that fundamentally how we should be examining this question independent of the the constitutional issues?
0: Yeah, I mean, I do think that's the fundamental conflict when we think about corporate political expenditures. Is that helping democracy by providing more viewpoints, providing more information, giving people more data that they can ingest and then figure out and make a more informed choice? Or are they contributing to democracy or are they abusing democracy? Uh, The other view is, is that when corporations are entitled to spend on politics, then they outspend everybody else like that. There's very few individuals. There's no individuals that have the money of Apple right? Apple has so much more money than any individual has that to say that Apple can spend money on politics and that's going to inform the public, maybe it informs the public, but it also can drown out other voices in politics. Citizens United clearly sides in favor of the first view that corporations are benefit democracy, help democracy. And the court in Citizens United viewed those restrictions on corporate expenditures as being a fundamental limitation on democracy and something that interfered with democratic self-governance. But I think it's kind of outrageous for the court in Citizens United to say that corporations are disfavored speakers. That, you know, one thing we know about American politics is that the interests of business get represented. That even if a corporation is restricted from speaking, the business people who make their fortunes from those corporations Are very active in politics, right? They're the ones who provide most of the financing for political campaigns. They're the ones who have the best access to political officials. So even in the absence of the ability to spend money on election ads, our political system is very strongly skewed, I think, in favor of business interests. We see this all the time. We see local communities basically providing extensive corporate welfare programs to try to lure businesses to come move into their community. We find businesses being the most active and uh, among the most active and politically influ- influential voices at every level of government in America. So to think that we restricting their political spending is somehow going to lead to a political debate that lacks the viewpoint of business interests, and a business people just seems to me unrealistic uh, and so I, I sort of favor with the uh, land in favor of the idea that we can restrict business speech in various ways and we will still have a very very heavily
1: business influenced political system regardless so maybe it all boils down to your view of the famous footnote 4 in caroline products right which i think you you rightly point to as probably the most important footnote <laughs> in, uh, in American history. Maybe you could tell us a bit about that footnote, which which most law students and, and law professors are, are familiar with and say, you know, if that really does a good job of, of explaining or justifying constitutional protections, how might it or might it not apply to corporations? Sure, well, footnote four
0: is, uh, comes from a, a case called Caroline Products, decided in 1937. And it was an important, this footnote was just basically a suggestion to the court. Uh, the way to think about the Constitution is, is that when government uh, restricts the rights of people or when the government uh, discriminates against discrete and insular minorities, then the role of the Supreme Court is to step in, to second guess and to closely examine whatever the, whatever the government has done and p- potentially scale it back. And the best example of this that we understand is, right, we think about how that explains Brown versus Board of Education, right, that the Supreme Court strikes down um, racial segregation because those are laws that discriminate against discrete and insular minorities. And so the court says, no, we're not going to allow government to discriminate in that way. And footnote four is rightly thought of to be sort of the foundation of modern judicial review, the way that the court approaches issues, uh, right, which is that if the government's regulating ordinary business affairs, well, then the Supreme Court basically stays on the sideline. But when the government regulates fundamental rights or discriminates against discrete and insular minorities, well, then the court gets in and second guesses what the government does and demands very high justification by the government for such action. And what happens is we find that over the course of the 20th century, that corporations kind of come to be seen as discrete and insular minorities, just like racial minorities, but not by the public at large, but by members of the Supreme Court. And that's exemplified, I think, ultimately in Citizens United, where the court says that these laws that restrict corporate speech are basically discriminations against disfavored groups of people who've come together in the corporate form. And so that idea that corporations could be discrete and insular minorities, even while they're the most powerful political entities, the most powerful forces in American in the American economy, kind of in some ways maybe flips Caroline Products on its head, It uh, certainly distorts the meaning of Caroline Products, because now the Supreme Court is stepping in to protect not the most vulnerable people from being discriminated against but the most powerful people from being held accountable and to be limited to give space for we, the people, to exercise our right of democratic self-governance. And so that's how I sort of see Caroline Products helping to explain the growth of corporate rights uh, over the course of the 20th century.
1: And look, there are strong parallels between uh, constitutional law and corporate law, right? I mean, corporate laws is also about protecting minority shareholders. And I'm wondering, just on the, at the high level, we in law school, we tend to think of people doing private law versus public law. And we've got the folks doing corporate law over here and the folks doing constitutional law over there. But I think the the parallels are, are, are very strong. And I'm one of the strange people that took corporate law before I took constitutional law. I think most people kind of do it the other way around. And you can really see how constitutional law builds on on corporate law principles. Do you think that in law schools, we do enough to kind of encourage literacy in both of these domains, seeing how closely tied they are together?
0: I don't think so. Uh, and I think you're absolutely right in your assessment that these things are kind of siloed, right? That we have corporate laws in its own silo and Public law, constitutional law is in its own silo and never the twain shall meet. Uh, And indeed, when I've got a, uh, you see my books behind me, I've got a whole uh, shelf filled with constitutional law textbooks. And while there's plenty of material in there on women's rights, plenty of material in there on civil rights, there's material on there there on uh, the rights of LGBTQ people. There's even stuff in there on states' rights. What you won't find is any section in that book devoted to corporate rights. The corporation has been gaining constitutional rights, but remains in some ways sort of like the elephant in the room that no one talks about. Similarly, in corporate law, you can look through the corporate law textbooks and you won't find much discussion of the Constitution at all. Now, over the last 10 years, that's broken down a little bit because of Citizens United. Now, corporate law books will sometimes talk about Citizens United and try to look at that through a corporate law frame. And sometimes now the textbooks will talk about corporations a little bit because of Citizens United. But there really has been a much deeper history and interrelationship between corporate law, constitutional law, the corporation, and our great constitutional rights. And in fact, I find in my book that when we look at the history of corporate rights, we find that corporations have often been important innovators in constitutional law, bringing some of the the landmark cases that first breathed life into certain constitutional provisions back in the early 1800s and continuing on uh, to this day. What I'm trying to do in this book, We the Corporations, is uh, unsilo those two ideas, right? Uh, take the corporation and put it in constitutional law and to take the constitution and put it into corporate law and to understand the relationship between those two things. So that's why a podcast called Unsiloed seems perfectly
1: appropriate for this book. Well, Adam, indeed the book does a wonderful job. It's really a pot boiler. It's hard to put down, at least if you're someone like me who's interested in all of these issues. So I highly recommend uh, We the Corporations, How American Businesses won their civil rights and, it, of course, it's it's an ongoing story and uh, you'll probably have to start adding chapters to it and <laughs> offering up new additions because I don't think that the issues raised in in these cases are going to go anytime soon. Thank you so much, Adam, for joining me.
0: Thanks so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes,